From a speaker point of view, in terms of um, opening the conference, I'd like to, to welcome Sitten Bailey and Betty. Um, she's a political analyst and lecturer in the Department of Political Sciences at the University of Pretoria, where she lectures international relations and South African politics. She's well versed in what the plans are for our, for our country, having come um, out of um, the Office of the Presidency, where she was a researcher um, in the Secretariat of the National Planning Commission. Her work in this regard was focused on public service reform and anti-corruption policy, um, which would make interesting, <laughs> interesting conversation, I'm sure. She contributed to the drafting of the National Development Plan. And prior to this, she worked as a political researcher at Adasa. Um, so she comes with great credentials to share with us her views on the political landscape in South Africa and then some of the implications for this on the sort of wider international policy. So without any further introductions, Sitembele, welcome. Thanks very much, Paul, for that warm welcome. Um, I have been living in Pretoria for, I've been teaching in Pretoria for about five years, but only living there for the past year. Um, and I felt like a real Pretoria village girl driving around Sandton this morning, trying to get into the hotel. Um, but I'm here. Um, and have been asked to speak to you about uh, some of the socio-political risk issues uh, that are facing South Africa at the moment. Uh, South Africans uh, typically sort of dramatically and self-aggrandizing. We sort of speak of our leadership periods in eras as if, you know, it's the coming of Jesus or the leaving of Jesus or the, you know, so we're speaking at the moment of this sort of Cyril era and new dawnness and things. And, um, and so I'll be giving a bit of an overview of my perspective on what the major risks are uh, from my perch as somebody that studies uh, politics both uh, in South Africa and on the continent and globally. And then, yeah, and sort of giving some of my ideas about that, uh, I end off with a bit of a risky uh, projection, actually, um, of what I think may happen in the elections next year, uh, which is always a fool's errand, but hey. Um, but that's what we'll do. And then, yeah, and then we'll open it up for questions. I think that uh, there's, there's a lot of slides on here. I'm going to run through it um, quite quickly, but they will be available to you to look through in more detail. Uh, but I think it'll be useful to have some engagement uh, with all of you guys. Also, it's always so nice to me to for me to speak to crowds of this size. I normally teach 550 first years twice a week. Being in a room with 550 hormonal 18, 19, and 20 year olds. So uh, I'm really looking forward to speaking to such a mature audience. <laughs> so um, I see here that my overview slide is a bit lost, but I've divided uh, my presentation up into about four big chunks. Um, and this is. Just over here, we're, what, over there somewhere, and that's Alexandra Township. 
Um, and this is a visual representation of South Africa's inequality, one of the most unequal countries in the world. Certainly the most unequal normal country in the world, in that we're the most unequal country that's not in the middle of a war um, or some other major political um, destabilization. And this title of this section is a paraphrasing of old man Anton Rupert. In the 1970s, he, uh, when he was fighting with the... Um, with the National Party leadership at the time, um, as a member of the National Party, mind you. But anyway, um, he was reported to have said, if the blacks don't eat, the whites won't sleep, um, in trying to call for, for reform. And for me, the reality that if the vast majority of South Africans don't eat, the slim portion on the top won't sleep is still true 30, 40 years after, 40 years after uh, Anton Rupert said this. Um, and this is a recognition that is found in the National Development Plan. As you heard, um, I was involved in the drafting of, of the plan in 2011 and 2012, uh, and uh, while I worked at the presidency. And one of the things that is said in sort of the preliminary or the introduction of the plan is that no political democracy can survive and flourish if the mass of people remain in poverty, without land, without tangible prospects of a better life. Um, and so attacking poverty and deprivation needs to be the first priority of any democratic government. I've been following uh, at the moment the Brazilians, Brazil is heading towards election and it looks very likely that the winner is going to be a rather nasty right-wing populist who glorifies the Brazilian dictatorship and is likely to want to use the democratic gains that he, use, that he, that he makes uh, to um, go back to some kind of authoritarian regime in Brazil. And Brazil's had cycles of that over, over um, 150 years. And... One of the things about it that Brazilian political scientists are talking about is that in the political science literature, a, a democracy is stable at about $14,000 per capita GDP. Brazil's at $9,000. We're way below that. Um, and Brazil is the other stable country that has an equality level similar to ours. Um, and so this idea of not being able to sustain democracy under conditions of extreme inequality is, is, is real. It's an old theme in political science, and it's one that we'd stopped thinking about. Um, when I was studying at UCT 15 years ago, we weren't really, you know, it was almost end of history, right? Uh, times were good in 2000, 2003. Um, and so... There was this feeling that actually you could sustain democracy no matter how uh, unequal um, society was because the, the, the water was rising, right? And so um, it, it, it was going to lift everybody up. But what we're seeing globally, uh, not just in uh, the global south, not just in Africa, but you're seeing it in Europe, um, you're seeing it in the United States, is that the sense of relative deprivation makes people make poor political choices. 
Um, and so, you know, we, can't, we can no longer take for granted uh, this link between, um, that the link between democracy and the sustainability of democracy and economic growth um, is, is there. And these are the uh, statistics on the second quarter uh, that were released about two days ago, yesterday or the day before, by StatsSA. Um, and it's the quarterly um, employment statistics. And the important things that I want to pick out here, it's employment by industry. Um, what I want to pick out here for you is the decline in um, manu -tactric. So there's been a quarter-on-quarter -quarter change um, fall of 13% in, in manufacturing, um, in mining, in transport, but significantly for us, uh, and for what I want to talk about, is in community services. Now, community services is the short-term government jobs. It's the public, um, the public work scheme um, jobs. And the big difference that made this drop between the first quarter and the second quarter is that in the first quarter, there was the big registration drive for the elections next year. So there were a lot of people employed um, for that. Uh, but the nature of these uh, extended public works programs job is that they are um, they're short term and they are cyclical. So what we have is that in this sector, uh, the community services broadly has been the most consistent growth area of employment creation over the past 10 years. And so what it means is that we've got the majority of South African employed people are stuck in the cycle of being employed for three weeks or maybe a month and then having nothing and then again. And so their, um, their employment is based and is subject to when the government decides to create employment for a something. So whether that is uh, the registration drive or whether that is... Um, building some sort of road somewhere. But what it also means is that you then have a mass of a workforce that's incredibly precarious. Um, so just more detail on those numbers. Uh, decreased by 69,000 jobs. So we shed 69,000 jobs from the first quarter to the second quarter of this year. Um, and the main decreases were in community services, I've said, manufacturing, mining and quarrying and transport. There were slight increases in trade, business services, and construction. And if you look at in unemployment by population group, this is still also from the QES. Uh, no, this is from the quarterly labor force survey that was released in July. Um, black, and this is the limited um, definition of unemployment. Uh, black or African unemployment, 30%. Colored, 23%. Indian, Asian, 10%. And white, 8%. So that our employment um, and unemployment and economic um, participation is still racialized. Um, it's also aged, which I'll show you as we, it's gendered and it's also aged. So the majority of unemployed people across race group are women. The majority of unemployed people across race group are young people. Um, about 70% of young black 
people between the ages of, um, they're counted as, as 15, because that's when kids can drop out of school, uh, 15 and 34 are un unemployed, 15 and 24 unemployed. Um, and so the person most likely to be unemployed in South Africa is a young black woman in a rural area. Um, and the other feature of South Africa's labor market is that it is highly uneven. Um, I haven't included it on this slide, but what I'll do uh, with the version that I give to be circulated is I'll put the link to two studies. The one is the World Bank Inequality Study that was released earlier this year. And the second is research that has been produced um, by the guys at Soldru, which is a research unit in the economics department at UCT, uh, on the disparity in the type of employment that we have in South Africa. And what we have is an economy that on one side looks similar to a UK and Ireland, United States, anywhere in the developed world, and on the other is pretty similar to Burundi. And the two, and you've got that in the same economy. So on the upper end, you have a small number of people that are in very highly paid jobs. So everybody sitting here is the 1%. Me, I'm a university lecturer. On this stage, I'm part of the 5%. But, <laughs> but y'all are the 1%. Um, so a small number of people that are highly paid in the formal sector and in large enterprises. So you're the guys that actually bring up our average. So South Africa is classified as an upper-middle-income upper country. Um, and we all here are the reason why uh, we are, the country is classified as that. Um, those jobs are highly sticky. People don't leave them. Um, or they, and they'll move laterally, but there's not a lot of space created um, in that sector of the economy. Uh, not a lot of new jobs created. Um, and the lowest of, so on average, um, in that upper strata, uh, they earn more than five times what the lower, uh, so that the top 20% um, of the working population earn more than five times the bottom 80%. Uh, the median income in South Africa is just over 3,600 rand. That's in the middle. And that's the median income of formal employment. So half of employed people in South Africa earn less than 3,600 rand. Which is why when the minimum wage was set at 3,500 rand, a lot of people have criticized it for not being um, high enough. But compared to Brazil, for example, a rise in the minimum wage, when Brazil instituted its minimum wage, uh, it helped out or changed the circumstances of about, of about 30%, I think, of the working population. In South Africa, 
the institution of the minimum wage is going to affect about 70% of the working population. Um, that is how much, that is how unequal um, our, um, our, our, our labor market is. Uh, the majority of South Africans are on poorly paid and uh, informal employment. Those who are in some kind, in employment that's counted as formal, are in very precarious employment. So I've already spoken about uh, community services and, and the government uh, extended public works program employment, uh, but what we've also seen is that in major corporations, uh, particularly in the manufacturing sector, is a casualization of labor. Now that's not just a, and so the labor broking and things, and that's not just a South African phenomenon. Uh, globally, Amazon, Uber, all the big, um, many of the big corporations globally are also doing this. Um, and it's a problem. It's causing major tensions in, uh, in developed world economies. Um, and it, you know, it contributes to all the tensions that we've got here, which is that uh, the majority of employees in manufacturing are casual. And so they work on zero hours contracts. They're not actually employed by the companies that they work for. So uh, a significant proportion of the employees at the Simba factory as you go towards the airport um, are employed by a number of labor brokers. So the, their employment contract is with the labor broker, but they go to work every day at Simba. They work by Simba rules, they've got Simba access cards. Um, but what that means, and some employee, employees have been in the situation for 10, 12 years, um, but they have no access to any of the uh, some of the benefits, but also their jobs can be cut tomorrow. They also have no regularity of working hours. So um, sometimes you'll work 10 hours a week. Other times you'll work 70 hours a week. And you've got no control over that, and you can't unionize. So there's no, uh, there's no labor force that speaks to, to, to the bosses, so to speak, at Simba. Uh, and if they try to do that, they get told, no, your employer is whatever the labor broker is that they work for. Um, and so what that does is that it's had a whole lot of, um, there's interesting sociological research that has been done in the past five years about the social impacts of this, because the majority of those workers also, um, of the precarious workers, are women. Uh, and so their ability to look after their families, to arrange childcare, um, and also then to participate in community life broadly uh, is, is, is seriously undermined by that. So on the one, so I start here with the labor stuff because I do think that the structural inequalities in the South African economy have been the biggest risk factor and will continue to be the biggest risk factor until we do something to deal with it. Um, and We'll talk a little bit about sort of how young people feature in this, but yeah, so that's the first um, thing. The second, that is Hard uh, Bay and Inizamoyetu in Cape Town. Um, 
an example of sort of spatial inequality, but also because of this big debate we're having, whose land is it anyway? Um, and so at the 54th conference of the ANC in uh, December, the ANC passed a resolution that uh, land expropriation without, expropriation without compensation should be one of the mechanisms that the state can use in addressing issues of land reform in South Africa. So that culminated on the 27th of February in the National Assembly, passing a resolution that would mandate the constitutional, the parliament has a standing joint constitutional review committee, and so they mandated the constitutional review committee to investigate and to look at section 25 of the constitution to see whether section 25 of the constitution in its current form enables expropriation without compensation. And if it does not, to advise on whether there should be a, an amendment to section 25. And there have been public hearings that have been going on that concluded in August. And the committee is sitting and has been um, reporting back on its public hearings, but also here, but also um, having um, sessions with different players in industry on this issue. And they've extended the report, and they've asked for an extension of the reporting deadline. They were meant to report back to the National Assembly tomorrow, on the 28th of September. Uh, that's not going to happen. They are still transcribing. So of the about a million, there were about a million submissions received from all over the country. And about 150,000 of them were handwritten. So there's an army in parliament at the moment needing to digitize uh, all of these submissions that they got from people. And so type it up and put it in. So it's going to take a while. Um, but the... And the thing about this process is that it is uncertain. We don't know where it's going to end up. And that's a good thing. Because the, whenever I speak to sort of foreign to the ambassadors and business people or whatever, and it's always like, is South Africa going to be Zimbabwe? And the thing that is, at the moment, the key differentiator is that this is going on, this is a democratic process through the constitutional means available of discussion, and that's a very important thing. It's also very important that this is a parliamentary discussion. In my early career, I worked in parliament. I, well, I worked for a monitoring parliamentary committees. And one of the remarkable things about the South African political system is how much gets hammered out in the parliamentary committee process. I know we've all been very interested in National Assembly and the boxing matches and the dramas and people being thrown out. But the real exciting work, at least for a political nerd like me, happens in committees. And South Africa is one of the, is the only, I've spoken to Canadians, I've spoken to Australians, I've spoken to Brits, have similar parliamentary systems to ours, um, where a piece of legislation can make its way to parliament in one form, so come from the executive in one form, and come out fundamentally different on the other end. Because our parliamentarians are actually pretty empowered to change things. 
And it's one of the, even though our opposition parties are small in terms of their electoral dominance, they've actually been able to play a hugely influential role in, um, in changing legislation in parliament. Um, and so one of the fascinating, most fascinating processes I sat and watched was on the Protection of Personal Information Act, Poppy. I mean, Poppy was discussed for about four years. And if you look at the legislation that was introduced and look at what came out, it's chalk and cheese. Um, and there was a surprising amount of cooperation in that committee between the ANC MPs and the DA MPs. So the late Dean Smets was one of the, who's a DA MP, was one of the big dons of that department, of that, of that committee. Um, and it was fascinating to watch how they don't only changed the legislation and sort of limited executive power, but also how the legislation actually became more sophisticated through its way in parliament. So my point is that, that this issue, at least around constitutional change, is being driven through a parliamentary process and not through a political process being driven by the executive or from any of the um, political parties is an important thing. And, um, and it's something that we must be grateful we can have um, in terms of being able to make sure that whatever comes out at the other end can also lead to a wholesale reform of the way in which land reform has been done in South Africa, which has been problematic uh, since 1994. Just a point, though, speaking about political parties, because although it's going through the parliament, it is still a political process, right? It's being discussed by political parties with different positions. And the most important actors here, because they are the ones who they, they joined up to put the resolution forward in parliament, um, the ANC and the EFF, and have very different positions on land reform, which I can understand why the EFF hasn't, con hasn't communicated that difference too much, because it works for them. Um, but the ANC has been very bad at communicating its position on land reform properly as well. Um, so both of them support the amendment of Section 25 for, some, for somewhat different reasons. And so um, part of the reason why the ANC supports or the kind of amendment that the ANC wants in Section 25 is to have more detail on what, so the way that Section 25 is set out is that it says land reform or land expropriation can take place for um, for the purposes of the public interest, and then it has a whole lot of limiting factors, and one of which is just an equitable compensation, um, which the ANC itself, since 1994, has interpreted as willing buyer, willing seller. That's not in the Constitution. But anyway, so what the ANC envisages is detail on the different um, limitations um, and conditions under which land expropriation can take place. Um, the other thing is that what the ANC wants is the expansion of private title. So that whatever land expropriation happens, the new owners will be given title deeds. So it's an expansion of 
the private property regime in South Africa. Um, there's uncertainty, though, given this view of the expansion of private title, there's uncertainty about what that means, then, for communal areas and for tribal authorities. Um, and so the Ingunyama Trust, which you've heard being spoken about, what the implications then are on that uh, are being questioned. Um, if I were analyzing this presentation from the outside, I would judge myself for this. Um, and I'd criticize myself for this because this is a government process, not an ANC process. But Ramaphosa, the, the president just announced a, uh, an advisory panel on land reform with a combination of academics, lawyers, um, um, economists, um, uh, agriculture specialists. Um, and what that advisory, and that's a parallel process. Now, that's an executive process. That's a process being driven uh, by the president, out of the presidency. And it's not supposed to preempt the constitutional review process. What it is supposed to do is to think of how land reform should be altered and improved or how it would be implemented given different outcomes of the constitutional review process. So if the constitutional review process says that section 25 should be amended in these ways, how then would that need to be implemented? What would the changes be in the institutions, in financing, what land would you start with first, all of those things. So they're really meant to look at the modalities of the implementation of any process uh, of, of, of land reform that's going to take place. Um, the EFF's position is that uh, all land should be transferred to the custodianship of the state. So very similar to the process that took place with uh, the Minerals and Petroleum Resources Development Act of 2002, where basically if you have gold in your garden, it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to the state according to that law. Um, so all minerals um, and oil underground are held, are, belong to the state regardless of who owns the title of that piece of land, according to that legislation. Now what the EFF wants is an extension of that that will say that that land, all land, is owned by the state. And what that means is that transfer should happen, and that transfer should happen without compensation and it applies to all South Africans, black or white. So everyone here who's paying a bond or eventually could possibly have a title deed to a property. Everyone? All of you, it doesn't matter, black, white, Chinese, previously disadvantaged or not, that's going to belong to the state. And then there will be land use licenses given out for those who currently use the land or have an immediate purpose for the land. But those land use licenses are a maximum of 25 years. And what that also means is that all occupants of land uh, will then need to apply though for a land use license to continue using the land. So my mom and her house in Greenside 
will have to apply for a license to keep her house in Greens. You know, that I live here residentially. I use the land for residential purposes, and so I should be allowed to stay on it. Um, and that applies for everybody. Um, the, there will be a renewal of these licenses every 25 years. Um, and the government will be able to say, you won't have the land license renewed. But also the government will be able to expropriate land that is not being used for the purpose for which it was set out to. And basically then the underpinning principle of the EFF's approach to land reform or to land policy is that no one should be allowed to own land forever. That it's the literal interpretation of the um, Freedom Charter thing that the land belongs to all who live in and work it. Um, and so there should be no permanence and one of the other things that they want, reasons they want that is to break um, the cycle of generational wealth building. Um, that basically everybody in every generation should have a chance as everybody else starting from scratch. So these are the, we don't get this a lot in the sort of media reporting, but these are the two fundamental differences. These are the fundamental differences in the approach to land between the ANC and the EFF. Both of these written down. I'll share the documents with you as well, if you'd like. Um, and so, and what we're going to find, and this is the kind of discussion, once the parliamentarians start going at each other, having looked at the, at the, at the different public submissions, they'll be debating around different visions of what they're trying to do and how that fits in with that section So the ANC wants amendment to section 25, but in such a way that it enables um, the, capital, the capitalist economy to be functioning, basically. Um, the EFF wants amendment of section 25 to fundamentally change the kind of economic system that we have. Um, number of implications that will be of interest to you. To, to you. Um, banking and finance. So, and that, that's, in, that's in a range of scales. So the first is how the vast majority of people, at least I hope the majority of people my age here, who have got property, it's still owned by the bank. So how do you manage that and expropriation uh, with our current financing system and, and the banking system? Um, and I know that Kaskuvadia uh, of the um, Banking Association um, has written a bit about kind of the ways in which they're trying to think about the different uh, permutations of this process. Uh, but how does that affect banking, and then how does that affect insurance, right? Um, and particularly in this period of uncertainty, until we know what the outcome is going to be, uh, how do you think of financing properties in the next year or two years? How do you think of insuring all of that sort of stuff? Um, 
The, and that is some of the clarity that the review panel is supposed to bring um, about how this will actually be, could be implemented under different circumstances. The second is that so much of the conversation continues to be about rural land. And the sort of biggest crisis of, um, of land in, in, in South Africa is actually urban land. Um, I was driving from, I was driving on the N3 on Monday on the public holiday, and it was amazing to me how many people are living literally on the banks of the N3 on e either side, and the number of women I saw, and I don't have the English, you know, I've been thinking, I was, as I was rounding, circling the block, I was thinking of the English term for this, and I don't actually have it. Um, so I'm going to say it in this Zulu, and then anyone who's got a translation, please give it to me, otherwise I'll literally describe it. Um, how many women I saw, Beoteza, going to go get firewood um, from the banks of the highway. Um, that's a scene that you typically see in rural areas, right, or in rural Transkaya, my dad comes from. You don't imagine that you'll see that in industrial Joburg. But you see a lot of that. So urban land is a problem. And it's uh, interestingly one of the things that apparently we're going to get a nice announcement from Herman Mashaba soon um, about the, the, which I think is going to piss off a lot of people, including his own party, um, about uh, wanting to expropriate buildings in town uh, to create a, a, a supply of cheap urban accommodation. Um, and so the urban land story is, is really being excluded. And then the third thing and the implications that need to be thought about is what does it mean for tenure security? Um, and across the board, um, my hunch is that whatever the consequence of, or the eventual outcome of these discussions for South Africans like us, if there's a problem, we'll be able to buy ourselves out of it. Because that's how most decisions get made in South Africa, right? If you've got enough money, you can buy yourself out of the problem. The big question is going to be what this means in terms of tenure security for the lower 80% of the population. So does it improve tenure security at all for people on communal land? Um, does it improve tenure security at all for farm workers, which is a major problem that we have? Um, what does it do for people who've received RDP houses? And, you know, do we still have the same rules about them not being able to sell in, in 10 years or whatever the story is? So tenure security is one of the big issues. And then finally, this issue of communal land and tribal authorities. Um, it's still unclear uh, what is going to be the result of this, but is something to think about um, because they affect such a significant chunk of the population. Okay, so young, wild, and free, young people um, in a lecture room somewhere. So from the July quarterly labor force survey, important things to note um, is that, okay, so the red is, uh, is youth, so people from 15 to 34. Uh, the blue or the black, whatever it looks like from your side, is 35 to 64 years old. 
Um, and this is the total of unemployed people. Now, and this is the limited definition of unemployment. Now, of the total unemployed, um, youth make up 38.8%, uh, and um, yeah, this is by age and education level. Um, so youth make up the bulk, and, and, and adults make up um, the rest. Now, important things to look at here, and the reason I put this slide up, is because it's age and education. If you have less than a matric education, you're more likely to be able um, If you have um, a matric, and then other tertiary, but graduate here is someone who's been to university or university college. And your unemployment rate is significantly lower um, than anyone else. So it's 12 percent um, unemployed graduates above 12 percent, and that's 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 increased over the past five years. So I remember when I started four years in 2013, it was about 7 percent. Um, so it's gone up. Um, but that's a degree from any of the universities. Other tertiary, 29%, matric, 40%, and then less than matric, uh, 44%. And that's the total numbers. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so the, the big thing here is that... Um, Young graduates also have a higher unemployment rate, which is 12%, which is more than two times higher than their adult counterparts, which is 4%. Um, important here, NEAT is uh, not in education, employment, or training. And these are NEAT rates for, um, 15, for the age group of 15 to 24. Um, and there's... And this is also limited rates. If you look at discouraged workers, it goes, it shoots right up. Um, but it's 31.6%. Um, the need rates continue to increase for women. So from quarter to quarter um, of ages of women between the ages of 15 and 24. The light red is, um, is, is, is quarter two in 2017, um, and then the darker red is the second quarter in 2018. Uh, so you can see uh, the decline um, there in some areas, but in others there's a slight improvement. Okay. Um, and then this is the same for 15 to 34. The highest NEAT rate uh, which is over 40% is amongst black females um, in the age group between 15 to 34. If you look at the details of that as well in the actual report, uh, there is a growing proportion of the unemployed who've never worked before. So there's a growing proportion of unemployed people who've never had a job by 30. Um, and if you haven't had a job by 30, you're unlikely to ever work. Um, and so, there is a solid chunk of our unemployed 
who are going to remain below the poverty line until they get the state old age pension when they're 60. Um, now, these are slightly old statistics now, um, but the trend, I think, is still, is, 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 is still evident. Um, yeah, these are about, about six, seven years old. 48% um, of students that start grade one finish grade 12. The biggest dropout, South Africa has pretty much um, universal adherence to education until the end of grade nine when kids don't have to be at school anymore in terms of legislation and when schools don't have to retain learners anymore. And then there's a massive dropout rate. Um, and so most of that 52% uh, that drops out between grade one and grade 12 does so between the end of grade nine and the end of grade 12. Um, there's about 30 well, it's a 30% pass rate for school leavers certificate. Um, only 30% of South African learners in public schools achieved a university exemption in 2013. And most of those, even though they got a university exemption, didn't get the minimum points for university program, so to get into a university program. Um, and... So we've got, a, and these, those two slides show that we've got a really um, inefficient higher education system. Um, and so, for example, in 2013, uh, only 10% of the growth was from first-time entrance into the system. Uh, so only 10% of the first years that were doing first year in 2013 were first-time entrants. The rest were repeaters because our, our higher education system is really inefficient about pushing people through. And so one of the consequences of that, and this is the explanation of how we all here are the 5%, is that South Africa has the highest private returns to tertiary education. I laughed, I saw on Twitter a tweet from the World Economic Forum about the top 10 uh, university systems in the world, and South Africa was amongst the top 10, because South Africa has the highest returns to going to university. So pretty much anyone who goes to a university in South Africa will get a job. Um, and that isn't actually a good thing, um, because it is that because our and in, our, our, our system is so unequal. So in most countries that are similar to us, so uh, in Brazil, for example, the rate of return on university education is only, is, is, it, there's an index, it's 17. South Africa's is close to 40. So what that means is that it just entrenches the disparity in the labor market that we've spoken about. Um, and it also explains why so many young people are literally bashing down doors to get to university, even though they probably shouldn't be there. Um, because it's the rational thing to do if you want to get employed. Um, and not only if you want to get employed, if you want to get employed at a decent level of income. So the big thing about 2019 is going to be uh, how much young people decide to participate in the election. What we've seen is that young people have chosen to exercise their and to participate politically in non-institutional means, i.e. protests. 
um, because they don't see voting as the best way to bring about change, they don't trust the system, they think it's corrupt, um, and they don't trust political officials. However, what we did see in 2011 and in 2016 was that when young people were registered to vote, they would generally turn out to vote, but the registration levels are really low. Uh, only 33% amongst the 18 to 19, and the excitement of voting, you'd expect that to be a bit higher. Um, and then 64% uh, in the 20 to 29 gap. Um, and so the other thing is that young people aren't necessarily uh, apathetic. They'll participate if they're satisfied, if they think it's going to make a difference. Um, but they also participate politically. They just don't do it in ways that we would think of as productive. Uh, this, um, this paper by Lauren Tracy is really, really informative um, about, um, about young people and how they think of, of elections. But what all this means is that in some ways we've become a protest nation. Um, and this here is a table on um, media-reported community protests. So, you know those things, I mean, I always laugh that in South Africa we've gotten so used to violent protests, or perhaps the people who are there's such distance between the people who are involved in violent protests and, um, and the 5%, that we tend to only hear about it on the traffic reports. It doesn't even make proper news. It's not news news, it's traffic news. Um, and so the protest reports that you hear about in the traffic news, uh, there were 375, this is the center at UJ run by... Prof. Alexander that uh, calculated this. There were 375 media-reported commu community protests in, in 2017. But what we know is that the protests reported to the police, so the police-reported community protests, outnumbered the media ones by a huge amount. So what that means is that there were more than 14,000 protests that took place. Um, this should be annually... Um, from 2005 to 2017, we see an increase in the protests um, and an increase in turmoil and, and violence. I don't know if you guys have seen what's been happening in Cape Town. Um, and the explanation for the protests is really, one, it works. Protests work. We've got a deeply unresponsive state. That doesn't listen. So often if you go and you interview, and when I covered the 2011 elections for Edasa, we went and we spoke to different people in different communities around the Western Cape that engaged in protest, and they said, well, we did everything. We got involved in the IDP process. We spoke to our councillor, we spoke to our ward councillor, then to the other councillors. Then we went and we wrote a petition to the mayor, and we did this, and they list all the things that they did. And they're like, nobody listened. So we burnt something. And you know what the nice thing about burning something is? The media comes, the analysts come to analyze, and the government comes. So it's a rational response to not being listened to by the elite. Um, 
there's also a low level of ownership of, of, of and a sense of citizenship. Uh, one of the things for me that was really striking about the protests that took place in Zim after the elections is that there was no destruction of infrastructure um, because people feel ownership of the infrastructure. Um, we don't have that here. Pent up frustration, and then there's a lot of young people hanging around, not doing anything. Um, and one of the things I haven't spoken about is, because there was so much to say, is South Africa has a massive drug problem. And so for anyone who works with medical schemes or with, and it's a cross-class problem, it's cross-race, uh, but we have young people that are on drugs. Um, there's a team at WITS that did some research for the Gauteng Health Department. And um, South Africa has a, health has a drug problem that rivals the Philippines. It's massive. We just don't talk about it. Um, and as I say, it's across race, it's across class. But um, the poorer you are, the more screwed you are by it because there's very little treatment, there's very few treatment facilities, um, and it happens in a context then of, um, of, 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 um, of, of poverty and just hopelessness. So there's a lot of the violent protests protests that turn violent or that turn disorderly because of the involvement of um, just young people who are hanging around. What else are you going to do? Um, and often hanging around and high. So after all of that, is this a dawn or dusk? <laughs> um, after seven months of sorrow, good things is I think that there's been significant institutional changes. So the efforts at stabilizing the SOEs, which isn't for their own sake, but because they are a threat to the fiscus because of the guarantees from Treasury, um, is, is on the road. We've finally seen um, some changes in the governance of the criminal justice institutions, so SAPs, the Hawks, the NPA, um, and there's I don't know how many inquiries going on on state capture. And what that is important for, I think, institutionally, and given the past 10 years that we've had, and this is not just high-level politics, it actually links to the grievances that people face at local government or whatever, is that we haven't had enough of consequence, we haven't had a consequence management system for our political leadership and for officials. And so what you've seen is a deliberate attempt by... Um, the current administration to try put in place some kind of consequence management um, system um, to deal with past crimes, but also, I think, um, projecting into the future. The economy, Cyril's economy sucks. Um, we all know the strain. Apparently, petrol's going up by Iran next week. Um, and so there's the stimulus plan that unfortunately is and Fitch pointed this out, is a continuation and a consolidation of a bunch of previous plans that just weren't implemented because the previous government wasn't interested in implementing things. So um, we've seen the immediate action on the visa regime. Uh, we'll see what happens with the rest. Uh, the thing, though, about um, thinking then on the details of um, the township economy and revitalizing the township economy is that we can't expect this change won't be sustainable if we just replicate the current structure of the economy, which is very monopolistic slash 
oligopolistic. In the township, if you open a bunch of pick and pays in a group in Soweto, there's a bunch of pick and pays, shop rights, all of that that's been opened, but it hasn't fundamentally changed how people are employed or whether people are being involved in making things or, um, or, or, or the absorption really into economic activity. It just means my aunt works at ShopRite in up, you know, 10 minutes from home instead of having to come into Randburg, but she's still employed doing the same thing and there hasn't been an expansion of the economy. So um, really some of these is going to need creative thinking about expansion. Um, the ANC is still a mess. The ANC will be a mess until it implodes. Um, and that's what happens with liberation movements, but that's also what happens with dominant parties. The ANC is a party that is not a one-party state. It's a, it's a dom we've got a dominant party system where one party has been able to, in competitive elections, win the election year after year. You saw the same thing in Japan after the war, you saw the same thing in Norway, you saw the same thing in India, in Mexico, and what happens with political parties like that is that they grow too big and unwieldy and they implode. And we're basically living through that of the ANC right now. <laughs> so what that means is that the Sunday Papers, headlines are going to remain the mess that they have been with plots and who's going to remove who because the ANC is trying to, to keep itself together instead of reconfiguring. Um, and that's just the reality. And no matter how much Sorrell speaks about unity, and it's not going to happen um, because of the type of entity that the ANC is. Ask anyone who survived the implosion of the Congress Party in India, they'll tell you the same thing. Hopefully, in, Cyril won't do an Indira Gandhi and send us to war with them. She went to war with Pakistan. So that is what we are going through right now. Um, just, the only thing I want to pick up on here is this sh 2019 should have been the election for the DA to like lose, right? Should have been the DAs to to lose. The DA should have been able, to, but it's it's its own worst enemy. Um, and so I no longer can say. If you'd asked me a year ago if I thought the DA had a chance of capturing Gauteng, I would have said yes. I don't think so anymore. Um, I think. The ANC will drop by maximum 7% from the 62 it got in 2014. I don't think it will be a bigger drop than that. Um, I think it will retain all eight of the provinces it runs by smaller margins. The DA, if it goes at its current trajectory, will only go from, what is it, 22 to 25. I don't see it hitting the 30% mark. Um, it'll retain the Western Cape, it'll improve in Gauteng and the Eastern Cape and the Northern Cape. But as it goes, I don't think the DA has a chance of getting another province because of its internal issues. The EFF, I think 12 to 15% uh, from the 6% it got 
in 2014. It'll continue being the main opposition in Limpopo. I think it's likely to be in Gauteng and, and will continue to be the main opposition in Northwest. Um, I think that in a place like Gauteng, depending on how much the ANC loses, the EFF could not necessarily be a kingmaker in the sense of the way that they have been in Joburg or in Tswane, but could be a, a necessary stabilizer. So that whoever, so if the ANC, which I think it will, wins Gauteng, but it will win by a small margin, it'll need to cooperate with the EFF to keep things stable and going. Um, so I think the EFF will play that kind of role here. Uh, and in and 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 in Northwest and and in the Bobo. all of this depends crucially on youth registration and turnout. Next year, uh, the is the bulk of the electorate. Or I think it's forty-two percent of the electorate will be below thirty. So if young people register and turn out, it will depend on the overall voter turnout, so if people generally decide to vote, um, and also the timing of the elections. So uh, I think the last election, 2014, was on the 7th of May. Uh, I think we're likely to get an election about the same time, possibly even April. The problem with April is there's lots of public holidays, but, they may, but the president may decide that that's a good thing. Um, I think that the later the election is, the worse the ANC will fare. So, um, yeah, so I think that that is something to think about. So what does that mean for you? The first, and I know this is a really not good thing to say to actuaries, but things are really uncertain and you're not, it's going to be really difficult to use the past to predict the future. Um, the second is that plan for for tectonic change in the way that our economy is structured and functions in the next 10 to 20 years. And where this is useful in the past that is useful to look at is look at South Africa in the 20s and the 30s. After the miners' strike in 1922, um, how uh, the Smats government tried to deal with uh, the depression in the 30s um, and how the NP was thinking then of economic development in the 30s that led to... to think of... So I think that the South African analogy for the kind of rupture that we're going to get to is the 1920s and 30s. So um, look at how business um, managed uh, that. Also, some of the Asian economies, Singapore, um, Malaysia, they're different, but um, South Korea as well, but really useful. Um, they, there'll be some useful analogies there. And then uh, how do we design or make economic interventions or design products that promote inclusivity and expansion under the current circumstances where, so for anyone who's selling any kind of insurance product or whatever, 
How do you do that when the proportion of people that are in formal employment is declining? Um, is there a way to use the tools at your disposal to actually create a market and to expand um, economic activity rather than to just try and deal with the, construct, with the contraction? Whew, okay, that was long. Thank you. Any questions? I think I can take one round. Yes, ma'am. Okay, um, hi. Okay, so I think um, when you spoke, you spoke to a lot of risks, and, and one of the things that you said was that our tertiary education is a bit inefficient in terms of pushing things through. But my question is, do you think that is the inefficiency or perhaps the problem that we have is that we have a risk of perhaps a poorer high school kind of education so that there's a big gap between high school and tertiary and when people get to tertiary it's difficult to actually go through because of the kind of high school education that they have. And having said that, what do you think we can put in place so that we then improve our education system and also have a way to promote people so that they see that university is not the only option. Maybe, you know, some people can do vocational kind of works and things like that. Okay. Um, any other questions? Hi. Um, what's the real status of the National Development Plan? <laughs> I worry that it's a, it's a victim of passive resistance, so it'll never, be, it'll never be swept away, so we can't write another one, but it'll simply never, never be enacted. Thanks. Good question. Um, thanks very much for a very interesting presentation. Maybe just a, a sort of observation, and uh, I think all the, the, the things you mentioned here about the youth unemployment, it's really symptomatic of what's happening in South Africa. If you look back, I think I looked in the population statistics back in 1960, and we were about 10 million in total. Uh, black African, maybe two-thirds, non-black African, uh, sort of one-third. 2010, 50 years later, we're looking at 50 million, uh, ratio one to mm -hmm. 10. I think over that time, obviously, a lot of things have been automated, so if anything, your employment would be going down. And I think that's really why we're seeing so much um, violence and, and um, uh, sort of protests and all that sort of thing. You hear about it all the time. I mean, the electric fences are just getting bigger and higher voltage uh, just because it's, I mean, the guys are sitting at home, they've got nothing, they see people driving Porsches and, and Ferraris or whatever, and I think that's fundamentally uh, part, of the, part of the problem. So just, just an observation, yeah. really. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yes, I'll answer quickly. Um, yes, uh, the, the quality of, of high school um, education is decreasing, um, but weirdly enough, we're also seeing there's a, high, there's a high proportion ever of young people finishing high school and going into university. And what universities have not been able to do for resource constraints and all sorts of things is to put in place the support systems to deal with that. So um, it's changing a bit now and that's a result of the, of the fallist movement actually. But when I first started teaching um, at university, there were fewer support structures in place in 2013 than there had been in 2003 when I started university for students coming from 
lower socioeconomic backgrounds because universities just couldn't afford to provide those support services anymore. So, um, so it's been a so. So on the one hand, yes, uh, the quality of students coming in um, hasn't been um, as good, but there's also been a decline in the ability of universities to manage that. And so that creates a perfect storm. I also think, and I agree with you, there's a lot of people who are entering the university system that shouldn't be there, uh, that could be much better placed doing other things. So vocational uh, training is one of the big things, and um, it, I'm glad to see that it's become one of the big focuses of Naledi Pandor, the new minister of higher education. And the problem is that... Uh, vocational institutions just haven't been resourced. So they don't have adequate facilities often, or they have adequate facilities and no one to teach there, or they have adequate facilities and people to teach, but no links with industry for people to get the licensing and the full qualifications that they need for things. So um, there's a whole pipeline that needs to be thought of properly to also make that s sector then attractive. Because young people aren't stupid. You know cousin X who went to this vocational college and has been sitting at home. We saw the thing about tertiary um, absorption of people that go to tertiary that's not university. So you don't want to go to one of those vocational colleges no matter what your interests are because the returns to it aren't very high. So we need to improve the quality of the vocational system if we want to be able to reverse, relieve the burden on the university system. Um, and then... Uh, the other thing is that because there's been so many, I, I sat, I listened to Ricardo Hausman, who's an economist from Harvard, speak, and he said he'd done a study on car manufacturers here and somewhere in East Asia, in Southeast Asia, and when he, and there they only needed somebody who was above the age of 15, regardless of their economic, of their educational qualification. In South Africa, they demanded a matric. When he asked why they demanded a matric, they said because we can, because there's enough people with the matric that aren't employed. So, yeah. And so that's the other thing, is that restructuring how we think of the labor market is going to be, needs, needs to happen. Can't only be an education or a supply side intervention. Um, there's something that needs to be happening on the demand side as well uh, for us to even it out. And then you're the NDP. So these things that I'm talking about are in the NDP about. Um, and uh, what did you call it? Passive resistance. Uh, yeah, I think there was a lot of that, um, and the NDP got involved in a whole lot of politics. Um, and some of the in interesting politics about the NDP, so things like when the original plan was released, what was supposed to happen was that the plan was supposed to be released and then was supposed to be fully costed. Um, and there was a resistance to costing it, um, etc. So... Um, but there's also the sense that you're stuck with it, at least as a rhetorical vision. So what the uh, Department of Planning, um, Monitoring and Evaluation under their DG, Mpumi um, Mbofu, are doing is they are working on a number of updates of specific areas so, um, and working with academics uh, and with different sectors on on really updating specific areas and, and targets without saying that they're rewriting the NDP. Um, and that is what's going to feed into then the medium-term policy cycle from next year. Right. And it's always interesting when people call 
sort of multiple facets of information together and present them coherently. So thanks very much. Thank you very much.